Welcome everybody to 1.30 a.m. a podcast about what keeps entrepreneurs up at night. Um, today on the episode 17, I'm giving you Swish Kaswami. Um, Swish is the CEO of TruePan, an investor, a three-time TEDx speaker, and the top voice in LinkedIn about entrepreneurship. Swish, it is an incredible pleasure to have you, man. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Before we get started, I want to ask you a very selfish question. How the heck did I get you on my podcast? You're probably, yeah. you're probably getting hundreds of emails every day asking to be a speaker or a podcast guest or, or you know, a content collaborator of some sort. What really happened through your mind? I mean, the reason why I'm asking is because a lot of people in my network are trying to build a podcast right now. How can they get you or the people like you? What went through your mind? I'd love to start there. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate people that just reach out in a, in a very positive way, right? Tell me a little bit about why you started your podcast, what it's about, who maybe you've interviewed. Um, and then for me, again, I, you know, I'm not someone that I think, uh, yeah, I just maybe I don't, I, don't, I don't treat myself as someone that like, you know, doesn't talk to people uh, after a certain point. You know, I feel like, my community has helped me so much that it's only my responsibility to give back to them and giving back to them doesn't only mean, you know, providing them value, but also giving my time up as well. So wherever I can, you know, whether it's for two to three hours a week, I try to talk to new people um, that just reach out in a really cool way. And I just felt like, yeah, the way you reached out about this podcast told me a bit more about it. I was, uh, I was super excited to be able to come on and, and share some stuff of what we're working on. Thank you so much. And, and for everybody listening, the biggest lesson is don't be afraid to reach out. You can probably yeah. reach people like Swish and, 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 and others uh, by just putting together an email. And that was a very, very cold email. And I, I don't know what, you know, how I sort of went about it, but I thought to myself, you know, if I want to make this big one day and reach a lot of people, I should probably shoot for the stars. Um, and that's how your name came about. So I appreciate you uh, spending that time with us. Um, let's begin with your origin story. I don't want to get this one wrong and I don't want to mess it up. So instead of me sort of rehashing your LinkedIn profile for people listening, why don't I give you, you know, a three to five minutes to sort of take us all the way back. Um, um, you are somebody who, you know, is, 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 is uh, referred to as a youth entrepreneur, you know, an influencer, a, you know, social media personality, um, and, and more recently, you know, a, a repeat founder and an investor. Right. But take uh, take us all the way back. How did you get started on this journey? What what kind of kid were you? What, what were sort of your goals and aspirations? You know, let's let's take us to the moments of Genesis. Sure. I, uh, you know, grew up in Singapore and Calgary. So those are the two places I mainly spent my childhood um, from zero to eight. I was in Singapore and I was very academically focused. Singapore, obviously, the Asian education system is accelerated. So when I was in primary one or grade one, I was really learning to like the level of a grade three student here or a grade four student here, um, which meant that when I moved to Calgary, I had a lot of free time because school came kind of easy to me. So when I was in grade two, when I was in grade three, when I was in grade four, I felt really ahead of people. And I felt like I, I didn't have to kind of work that hard at school. Um, and that opened up a lot of opportunities to do other things, right? Like one of my first kind of dreams was I really wanted to be an actor. Like I wanted to work uh, specifically in Bollywood movies because I was obsessed about watching Bollywood movies. The main issue though, is I can't speak Hindi very well, which is a prerequisite for, for doing Bollywood movies. Um, and, you know, another dream of mine then after that was to be a filmmaker. 
So kind of not being an actor, but maybe being a director or screenwriter. Um, but I, I really like didn't have a lot of patience for sitting down and writing about one idea for like six months. So I lost kind of that, that kind of idea as well. And I remember like when I was seven years old, my dad, you know, built a hovercraft with me because he was an engineer by trades and he was trying to teach me a little bit about engineering, get me a bit interested in building things from scratch. And I remember being very kind of, you know, captivated by the marketing and sales side of doing that in terms of like, once we built it, how do we make money? Um, and that also came, you know, up later in life. When I was 14, I joined a program called Junior Achievement um, when I was in Calgary and in that program became, you know, part of this kind of custom lapel pins company. We sold these pins and we sold about $26,000 worth of pins in three, four months, became Southwest Alberta's company of the year. We were nominated for Candace company of the year for the program. And that, again, I think was a great indication that, okay, maybe this guy isn't going to be a lawyer, doctor, engineer. My, my parents were thinking maybe he'll do something else. Mm. Um, while that was all happening, though, like I, I still was very focused at school, um, especially high school. When it came around, it was a little bit more challenging. I started to kind of feel like, okay, I need to kind of work at this now. It became a little bit more stressful. Um, but I also started playing a lot of sports. I played cricket. I played volleyball. I played basketball. Um, and I also debated at a high level. So in grade 11 and 12, I stopped doing any sports. I even stopped building anything really outside of school because I was fully focused on debating. I got onto the national team for Canada. Um, we attended probably around 20 international events, including two world competitions. And normally, you know, debaters try to go either into law or politics. Politics is definitely something that captivated me, but not at this age. It's definitely something I'd want to do maybe down the road. Um, but law was something that I thought could be great. My brother's a lawyer. I could be a lawyer. I thought it made sense. Two years into my undergrad, I decided, no, it does not make any sense. <laughs> Why? Um, what, what was so bad or yeah. so unfavorable about be getting a lawyer, becoming a lawyer uh, uh, in your minds at that time? I think I came into it for the wrong reasons. Like I, there were two things I really liked about law. One was the fact that you could use your public speaking skills and you could go to court and argue. I felt like it was similar to debating. Then I realized though, that like, even if you are a first, second, third year associate, the chances of going to trial are very low. And even if you decide to do it, it's like 5% of the job. The other 95% is actually reading and writing, which I wasn't the biggest fan of. And then the second reason, I guess, that I really wanted to go into law is because of the money. I just thought like, whoa, like watching TV shows like Suits and The Good Wife and all of that, like lawyers make a lot of money. I could just do this for three, four years and it would be awesome. And then I can start my own business. But I think in that time, it was really great because especially my second year, I started trying things outside of school, building companies. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't work. The one that really helped me kind of get out to New York was this wearables company that I built out. Um, through the process of raising money from a basketball player named Trevor Booker, I ended up in New York. Ended up okay, 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 okay. Hold, hold, yeah. hold, hold on, yeah. hold. We yeah. will get to that. One second. Let's let's yeah. not, let's not roll through this like uh, you know like a like a track through asphalt. asphalt. <laughs> I, 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 I will break it all down. Uh, let's break it all down. But before we get there, uh, uh, which sounds like already captivating and amazing story uh, 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 so far. What, was English your first uh, language? You know, growing up in Singapore, or you know, did you have 
sort of like language barrier and like issues when you came to Calgary? How, how comfortable were you speaking? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, Singapore used to be a British colony. So English is the kind of first language for many people there. And actually, when I was growing up there, Mandarin wasn't encouraged to be taught in schools. Now there's a bit more of a Chinese influence. So I think Mandarin is taught in schools. Um, but yeah, English is definitely my, my first language, my first and candidly only language. Like I can I can understand Hindi now. Like my mom will speak to me in Hindi and, you know, I can understand Bollywood movies, but to, you know, really be able to speak at a high level, I think I can only do that within English. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny you mentioned that understand Bollywood movies because it was the same for me for English. I mean, English is not my first language. I grew up in Eastern Europe, you know, came from Ukraine when I was 17. I had to watch YouTube to actually teach myself English. And the right. moment I could right. watch without subtitles, I remember <laughs> that moment. That was like, that's it. I made it. I can watch a movie without subtitles and understand what they're saying. I'm done. Like I, I, I've, I've conquered this, uh, this language. So it's just, it's just funny how you, how you brought it up. Okay, great. So you, um, you, you're in Calgary and you're starting multiple businesses. Um, and I guess this, you know, career at not career and slash aspiration, you know, of uh, being a public speaker and, and, and debating, um, is that when you sort of started getting into the, the TEDx? Uh, ecosystem or was that a little bit later how did you get into uh, into the TEDx yeah I mean in my first year of college I was volunteering for the event and then a speaker dropped out and they were looking for another speaker I put my hand up based on my public speaking experience and debating and you know I started a charity in high school I was planning out my next charity in college I thought I could speak about social entrepreneurship and talk a little bit about my high school experience um, and so they liked it and that was my first TEDx talk in my, I think, second or third year, um, after I had dropped out, um, I decided to do another one. And this time it was focused around LinkedIn and around mm. kind of the brand that I'd built up as a student in college, uh, interviewing people, writing articles, sharing content on LinkedIn. And, and then the third talk that I gave was on mental health, which I gave two years ago. Um, and it was actually pretty sad because I felt like that was my best talk, but it wasn't properly recorded. So you can watch it, but it's like a, it's not on the TEDx page because they didn't meet the requirements for, for filming it. But it was still, in my opinion, a, a nice talk because it, it kind of went in deep to like my experiences around mental health, both in terms of maybe some of the things I have gone through and also the things that I've seen my friends go through, um, fellow entrepreneurs, fellow students when I was growing up. How, how, old, are you, how, how old were you when you uh, uh, did your first one? When I did my first TEDx talk? Yeah. Uh, eight, 18, I think. I was 18. 18. Okay, let me ask yeah. you this question. And by no means am I judging here, but a lot of people will say, well, at 18 years of age, what can you possibly share on the stage of TEDx? And, and again, a lot of people will say that because normally we see accomplished executive CEOs coming, sharing their experience of the past 40 years. And then there you are, you know, great communication skills, but how, how are you sort of feeling and navigating the fact that you were still so young, yet you were convinced that you had something valuable to share for people that are maybe twice your age, three times your age, you know, watching at home or watching in the live audience. What was going through your head? How did you navigate that experience? Yeah, I mean, two things. I mean, I understand the criticism for sure. And I understand, you know, the fact that like, many people when you're 18, 19, like they can, can't, they can easily just say like, what do you possibly know? Right. And so for me, like the first thing is I had experiences building up a nonprofit in high school. I had experiences debating at a very high level. I had experiences around networking because I had just started writing on LinkedIn. I think I'd grown to like 30,000 followers by the time I did 
the TEDx talk in my first year. Um, so I had these experiences and I mainly talked about those. Um, I try not to talk even now about things that I don't know about or I don't have experiences within. That's number one. And then I think number two, I mean, to be fair, like the people that I love watching when I watch YouTube videos or when I watch TEDx talks, I don't necessarily go and click right away at people that are, have already made it. I try to find people that are like in the process of building something because I just find them to be a little bit more relatable. Like I, I just, you know, it's like when people are make it and like they're successful, they are, they're, they're kind of go-to advice, like find your passion. And it makes no sense. Yeah. Like, right. Like I just, I don't get a lot from that, but I do get a lot from people that are in the thick and skin of it being like, here's like three things that you can do to figure out what you want to do because I just did it a year ago or I just did it two years ago, not 20 years ago. So I think there's a benefit as well and just perspective and when you're kind of giving advice and not only giving advice, but when you're talking about your experiences. Yeah. And even projecting that confidence, because, you know, let's face it, I, I may, may have done something in my life, but when I see all these, you know, older, you know, people more with more experience, I, some, you know, I would personally start getting like, you know, the, the shivers and, and, and everything like that. Just, just like getting mm -hmm. super nervous to, to, you know, to, to come across as that person that, you know, is trying to share something, but, you know, I, you know, I haven't quite made it yet. And like, you know, am I even qualified to speak on the subject? One of the, re one of the things that you said that I, I just love, you know, what, what you said there is that somebody who is already accomplished doesn't really have a lot to teach necessarily compared to somebody who is still in the process. I mean, the whole reason why I started this podcast uh, is to capture stories of people that are in the process. Um, to me, you know, getting advice from, and again, like I, I respect the hell out of Elon Musk and, you know, uh, 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 you know, and, 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 you know, say, you know, somebody like Gary Vee or, you know, um, uh, successful bankers, successful marketing people, successful entrepreneurs, but let's face it, you know, very few of them have the struggles that we're going through right now, where we're just trying to figure out how to get our first customer or, you know, how to navigate the whole like technology ecosystem and get a technical co-founder, you know, somebody who's got, you know, hundred billion dollars in the bank, you know, can not possibly understand the struggles that we're going through and hence the reason for, uh, for starting that, you know, for starting a podcast. So, you know, I, 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 I kind of love you for saying that. Um, so, you know, now we're sort of in this stage where, you know, you're, you're definitely building up your social presence. I mean, you mentioned 30,000 followers on LinkedIn, which is you know, a lot, sometimes more than I have right now, um, but getting there. Um, and at the same time, you've got this amazing uh, uh, experience of, you know, speaking in public, um, um, and started companies. Um, what happens then? I mean, what, what, like, you know, after you created your first company and you, you had that experience, you know, speaking publicly, um, what's next? How did you decide, okay, you know what, lawyers may not necessarily be the thing, but what, what is, um, what was your next step? Yeah. I mean, so when I, when I started the wearables company, um, generally speaking, I, I didn't have like a plan that I was going to drop out, but just, you know, somehow got a DM from Trevor Booker who played for the Brooklyn Nets. He had actually seen a video that I did with Gary. Um, so I, I went to New York after my first year of college and I sat down with Gary for 15 minutes and um, he videoed the conversation that we have, which is still live right now. Um, and in that video, I asked him a bunch of questions of being a young entrepreneur, how to go about finding your passion, how you know you've actually found it, um, how to deal with you know time management skills, all of that. Um, and so Trevor found that video, learned a little bit more about me, came on my LinkedIn profile, DM me there, DM me on Instagram, uh, decided to work together. And eventually when I went to New York, I also started working at a VC, J.B. Fitzgerald. So I was working at, you know, his VC for the summer. 
brought in actually one of their key investments, which was DC United, which was an MLS team um, and was managing uh, part of that deal along with managing a deal into uh, a company called Nobo Drops, um, which was started by my friend Ben Stern. He had gone on Shark Tank and basically built like an eco-friendly shampoo. So doing that was awesome because it gave me time to think about, okay, what's my next idea going to be? And I eventually became roommates in New York with a guy who had started this big Instagram account, Elliot Robinson. He had started this account at Dunk on Instagram. And he was looking for someone to come on and help him on the business side with brand deals or raising money or managing the team. And I came on and helped him out for about six, seven months doing that. Um, in the process of working with him, I was exposed to a lot of influencers, a lot of brands, understanding what issues they were going through. And those kind of issues led me to thinking about TrueFan and wanting to build the first iteration of TrueFan three years ago. So the first iteration was candidly pretty simple. Like we just wanted to build a platform that could find any brand or influencers top fans, whether there were like engaged fans or influential fans on Twitter or Instagram, our algorithm could find those people. And in the process of the last three years, we've really adapted our model. Like we've gone from doing that to also helping you find your competitors' top fans to also helping you generate first-party data on your followers. So getting emails and phone numbers and mailing addresses on your followers in a compliant manner that provides value directly to them for the information they're sharing with you. Yeah. It's almost like Alexa, uh, and I don't mean the voice, I mean the uh, uh, intelligence uh, uh, company uh, that Amazon bought up uh, and mm -hmm. they provide like a peek into like, you know, uh, competitors, content marketing and, and paid ad campaigns and things of that nature. You're providing a very similar service, but in realm of influencer marketing, right? Like you can pinpoint who is promoting their products, you know, what they're talking about. Um, and then you're, you're essentially saying, look, you should follow these companies to either know who you should get in touch with for your own product or to stay ahead of the sort of competition and anticipate that, you know, they're doing a deal with this influencer and, you know, it's probably because of the following things. So you should anticipate like, you know, uh, 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 you know, maybe some customers that will decide to convert to their product. Um, and how are you monetizing that, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so we charge a monthly subscription to brands. Um, right now we have over 750 customers. Um, you know, 80 of which are some of the world's biggest companies, whether it's Sony Music or Netflix or uh, the NBA and the NFL. Um, some of them actually not don't only pay us on a monthly subscription, but they pay for an annual or biannual plan as well. Um, so that's been the main mechanism that we monetize the platform and the data that we have. Um, we're pretty excited though, because in the next few months, we're actually going to be unveiling our third product, and that is going to be a consumer product. Um, I can't speak too much about it. I don't want to give away the secret sauce just yet, but um, what we think we're building here will hopefully redefine the role that people play in the data economy um, and the type of value exchange that we want to facilitate between brands and people is going to be more apparent than ever before. Wow. Wow. So, you know, hopefully we'll, 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 we'll get to that later. I, I have a brewing question in my mind. I mean, you're talking about your journey building TrueFan you know, Netflix and, you know, basketball and, and all that. And I'm like, you know, I'm struggling to say, like, you know, if I'm a, a founder today and I, you know, I just came out of college and, and I'm starting out a business, you know, I'm struggling to reach, you know, local mom and pop shops, let alone freaking Netflix, you know, what sort of, you know, how do you, first of all, how do you reconcile that within yourself that something like that is so close and within reach for you 
you know, uh, uh, compared to say, if you just started out. And then more importantly, you know, what advice can you give to founders that maybe don't have, you know, as much social clouds and relationships that you've managed to accumulate over, uh, you know, the, you know, several decades? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so essentially, you know, one thing to consider is that like I was also building up a personal brand while I was building TrueFan. So everywhere that I spoke, whether it was American Express or at Google or at Western Union, um, or it was, you know, places that I was a board member of, League of Innovators or the National Charity or being on Adweek's, you know, Gen ZO Council, this all really helped me get in front of the right people. So the right executives at these big companies that I could easily tell them about what I was doing and they would set up a meeting with their team to go over it. So I think that definitely helped. I think the second thing which was crucially important is that our product was really good. Like candidly speaking, like we, we built something that made people want to refer other people. Um, and so when people used our platform, especially if you came from a Fortune 500 company, you typically have friends also that work at other Fortune 500 companies you're going to tell them about it. So a lot of our kind of outreach methods were organic. Like we had literally customers come inbound to us, whether, you know, it was Procter and Gamble that came through our contact request form or whether it was, you know, even recently Sequoia Capital, they haven't confirmed as a customer yet, but they came on through our contact request form. So it's been pretty neat to see the fact that like, if you really focus on product and if you focus on building something really valuable, and again, you get into the hands of maybe one or two enterprise marketeers, that type of, you know, word of mouth can really help you uh, spread and, and go from there. How do you build a social brand? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing that a lot and I'm very much in the camp of, you know, if you, it, you know, it's not about what company you're building right now. It, what's more importantly is who you are as a person, right? Because you can move, go on to sell a company and start another company and, you know, you know collaborate with other entrepreneurs to, to do like a joint, joint venture. Uh, but it's really important for people to know who you are. Uh, I sort of like, you know, not look down, that's the wrong word, but I sort of, you know, it's it's almost like a second thought uh, where, you know, when I see a faceless corporation, and that term is such a, you know, such a powerful way to really explain it. The faceless corporation where, you know, there is a big structure, but you don't even know who the CEO is or who the mm -hmm. person behind this is. Um, um, but, you know, in the, in, in, in 2021, it's really important to be the front and center of your company and have so, so, uh, uh, um, a personal brand, uh, 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 you know, to amplify this. Two questions, you know, what, what are your uh, comments on how important this is? Or like, how do you sort of wrap your head around having a social brand, what it is? Um, and then, you know, the second question, which is for somebody that doesn't have a, so, a personal brand, you know, how do we get to the point where, you know, somebody can t start taking it seriously and start taking our, you know, uh, 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 contribution or uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, commentary or, you know, uh, uh, social activity seriously? Yeah, I think, you know, in regards to that, that first question, um, I, I think it is important. I think, again, you can do without it as well. Like there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are very successful that have not built up a personal brand and they just focus in on just their business and they grow that and then they develop a personal brand later on because of it. Um, for me, again, being in the marketing industry, I felt like it was important to be able to build up a personal brand of some kind. So I do focus, you know, some time on my content, whether it's through Instagram or through LinkedIn, but by no means is that like a priority for me. Like that's more of a luxury. If I have some time in my day, if I have some time at the end of the week, I'll put out a few posts, 
a comment back to people because I really want to make sure that people know that I'm not a bot just putting out content that I'm actually responding to people directly. Um, but again, that's not a priority. The priority is number one, focus in on the business, focus on the product, focus on the team that we built and really help them and support them. Um, the second thing, if you do want to build a personal brand, I think the number one way to do that candidly is two things. One, make sure that you are consistently posting content, right? Like I, when I was early on on LinkedIn, I was posting maybe four times a day, like just sharing articles that I really liked and providing a takeaway that I think people would really enjoy interviewing people. I think interviewing people is such a great way. If you're scared of talking about your own ideas, just share other people's ideas, interview them, or just go online, find some of the coolest people that you admire and write up a post about them and share it with their headshot. That is something that you can do. Anyone can do it and no one should be mad at you for doing it. Um, and then the second thing in, in regards to building a personal brand is documenting your life, right? I think Gary does this so yes. well, like he's building a business and when you take a look at the content he puts out, it's simply going over kind of what he's already done in his business. So it's not like added content that requires him to think too creatively. Obviously now he has, you know, a 40 person personal branding team. You don't need that. All you got to do though, is maybe find some moments throughout your day to take your phone and just do an Instagram story and tell people what you've done today or what challenges you're facing this month or what you're really excited about next month. So those small things that you can do, but again, a lot of people candidly don't do it for two reasons, right? They, they don't do it either because they're lazy um, or they don't do it because they're scared of what other people will think. Judgment. About them. And yep. those are fine. Like, both of those are fine. I have been lazy in life. I understand what it feels like to be lazy sometimes. But again, you can't then knock yourself down and say it's too hard because if you haven't even tried it, you know, you can't say that's too hard to build a personal brand up or anything like that. Since I got you on this call, I'm, I'm, I really want to, you know, get your insight on this one. So you have your personal brand, which is Swish Goswami, you know, profile page, and then you've got an Instagram account for TrueCan. How similar or different are those? And for somebody that's just starting out, so, you know, say, you know, I got 500 followers on my personal account and I got zero because I just created the company page. I got zero on my company page. Uh, and now I want to start, you know, building that up. Uh, how similar or different should the content be on both? If you are, first of all, trying to keep up with your personal brand, but at the same time, you want to siphon some of your audience into your company page and you want to you know, get uh, potentially some customers by, by posting and becoming a, a thought leader uh, in the industry where you're operating. What are your thoughts on managing two accounts? It, it depends, right? Like for me, my goal with my kind of personal Instagram account is not to direct people from that page to the true fan page. Um, I, I candidly treat my Instagram account very much like a Facebook account. It's personal. It's, it's something that like I share memes. I share videos that I find funny. I, yes, I share posts about my business, but I also share posts about me traveling, me speaking, um, friends of mine, like just cool moments. Um, so I try to keep that a little bit more personal, but again, you know, with the business account, like that's managed now by our social team and they've kind of built up their own brand voice. So I don't really tell them what to do. They can go ahead and, and kind of run that page in whatever way they like. Obviously, I'll provide suggestions whenever they ask for it, or if I feel like there is a good suggestion I can offer. But I think that TrueFan page has its own voice. Like when you take a look at the Instagram account for TrueFan, you will find that we are putting out a lot of content that's related to our product. We're using our product, for example, to find Super Mario Bros.'s top five fans. And during Super Mario Bros. week, we'll share that with a really cool graphic telling people here are the top five fans on Twitter for Super Mario Bros, right? So 
that's the type of content that's very product oriented versus for me, it's more lifestyle oriented, more around me as a person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, w- I wanted to ask you because, well, first of all, would love to get your thoughts on social rank. And I think the other recent acquisition that y- you just made, um, um, talk a little bit about that. First of all, you know, how, what's your, I guess, you know, let, let's just get your thoughts on the, on this. Like, why did you feel like you had to, you know, buy a company instead of creating something within? Um, uh, and then the second thing is, you know, recently you raised, I think, $2.1 million, if I'm getting that number right. Um, mm-hmm. What was your experience like? You know, just uh, uh, obviously, you know, your traction speaks for, itse- for, for, for itself, but uh, even just, you know, to, to get your thoughts on the, on, on the fundraising side of things, how, how did that feel? Still, it's still fresh, you know? Sure. I mean, on the acquisition front, we did it primarily because we realized that when our customers asked us for certain features, like finding our competitors' top fans or, you know, generating first-party data, yes, we had a team that could build out those features, but it would take far longer than just buying out another platform. Um, And again, we really pushed for getting great kind of offers and great deals. So I feel like on both, we got a really good price that we were happy with um, and we were able to move forward on that basis. Uh, it was really cool because the second acquisition with Player came also not just with their technology and their brand and their customers, but it also came with their team. So we took about 11 people from the team, um, including their CTO, who's now our CTO, Andrew, um, and some really brilliant people along with Andrew that I think have really helped the company grow and become more legitimate, become bigger, become much, much faster and, and easier to scale. Um, in terms of the fundraising round, it was, it was definitely a grind. I wouldn't say it wasn't a grind. Like I, I had conviction that we were going to close because we were hearing really good feedback, but for some reason we kept hearing no's initially. Um, so we heard no's either because funds felt like, you know, we were ad tech and they didn't want to invest in an ad tech platform or, you know, they weren't investing anymore or they were, you know, weren't really willing to close within a month and we wanted to really close within a month, but obviously we were now pitching virtually and not in person. So there were some like, you know, pretty interesting scenarios that led to quite a few no's, but it was really neat because when we finally got that yes from Mineta, that yes meant a lot because again, it was, you know, getting that yes from a lot of really cool people was nice, um, but getting the yes from the right partner just makes it really special. And so when we kind of got the go ahead from Mineta, we qualified our offers, we had a few other yeses and we decided to go with Mineta. And it was really neat because Mineta came on as not only, you know, an investor, but really a partner like their entire team is made up of operators they all are experienced with enterprise sales so they really helped right away in terms of like setting up weekly calls with our cmo our head of sales and sitting down and just mapping everything out i'm curious because i know we're you know sort of starting to run out of time and i really want to you know spend the the final sort of eight to ten minutes just uh you know getting your uh uh, general thoughts on 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 a couple of subjects if you if you don't mind um, mm-hmm. The first one, and I and I, I just kind of want to you know close it at that in terms of like your company and what you're working on right now, you know, in your best estimate or sort of like your most grand uh, you know vision and, and aspiration, where do you see TrueFan eventually getting? I mean, I know right now you're you know you you're, you're probably you know uh, in the trenches grinding and growing and, and hiring and developing the product, but if you were to sort of you know, take a couple of steps uh, back and sort of just to reflect on, you know, how, how far you've come and how far you think you, you can take this. Um, what, what, what's the biggest sort of, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, or, or, or the end point that you see for this company of yours? 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the market landscape, consumer privacy concerns continue to rise. It's not like they're going down. And it's also not like we've solved the issue of consumer privacy. Um, it's actually why, you know, Apple's newest software update, iOS 14.5, was such a cool point of validation for our company, because we've been talking about privacy now for some time. And I feel like these big tech companies are only starting to realize, like, asking for permission to track people is probably a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really neat. And then when you take a look at even just what brands need, brands will always need customer data. Um, however, a lot of brands, again, aren't equipped to be able to generate that customer data from first party data outlets uh, in a compliant and high quality manner. So if they're not getting their data from a third party source like Instagram or Twitter, some brands are, are truly helpless and they need to work with companies in order to generate that customer data properly. So with that in mind, I do think that TrueFan can be a billion dollar company. Uh, I think we can be a public company down the road. It is exactly kind of the dream that Anik and I have for the companies to ring the bell one day. Um, and especially with this consumer platform we're putting out by the end of the year, um, we really think it's going to blow everything up. Um, and essentially what it's going to do is, is very much, you know, for lack of a better word, showcase TrueFan as a company that builds products to improve brand engagement while respecting consumer privacy and compensating users. That is the key. You know, that is kind of the one line that I would say summarizes what TrueFan will be in the next six months. Wow, six months. Okay, oh, I I wish you I wish you you know uh, uh, success with that for sure. Um, but in terms of yourself, you personally as a human being, um, you know, I we, we talk a lot about successes, right? Um, what we don't talk a lot about is the process of getting there. Um, the overnight successes usually get decades uh, in the in the making. Part to it. Uh, which I feel like not a lot of people talk about, but also, you know, the mental stress, the, the setbacks, the, uh, you know, the failures. And, and I'm sure, you know, no matter how successful you are, and like, I see you sort of, you know, taking on this world, um, like, you know, very few people that I personally know or have in my network, um, um, I'm sure that came at the cost for you. Can you speak to that? And I mean, I don't mean to put you in the spot, but if there's any a story or sort of like a like a, you know, a takeaway for people or, or even something personal that happened to you that you're like, you know, nobody knows about you or, or something that you don't talk enough about, but you wish people sort of knew uh, on, on the downsides side of things um, uh, to kind of round it up um, uh, in the package. Totally. I mean, I mean, number one is that not all my ideas have been good. Um, I've had terrible ideas. Like I, I tried starting a food sharing platform in my first year of college with my best friend, Quinn. Uh, we basically wanted to take leftover and excess food and share that between students uh, and realize that it's illegal to make money off it, but it's probably a gross idea as it is to take someone else's leftover food and eat it. Um, we've tried starting, you know, a council for millennials called Millennial Council that took like 14 of the most high profile young people and put them together in one room to be able to write policy papers for politicians. Um, and that didn't work because of timing differences. Like we, we got a bunch of great young people, but they were all over the world and it was impossible to do work on the, on the same thing. Um, and so there are a bunch of ideas that didn't work. I think secondly, there's a lot of personal sacrifices that need to be made. Obviously, you know, dropping out of college was a risky decision and it wasn't something that I- You think, dropped out you know, of college, you never, you, you never graduated. No, I didn't. Yeah, so I don't think anyone should ever ever take that lightly. You know, like it is, it is something that, if you can stay in school, I would definitely stay in school. Um, but again, like if you really have an idea, if you have validation that points towards the direction that the idea will work, 
then maybe taking, you know, a year off is a good way to test it out. And if that works well, then keep going. And that's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. And then I think on the third and kind of final aspect is, is mental health, right? Like, you know, entrepreneurship, I've realized is just so much about highs and lows. Um, you know, the great days feel unbelievable and the low days just feel absolutely terrible. Um, and so for me, like my biggest kind of learning lesson is just being staying neutral always, like through the bad and through the good, just stay neutral. Take it all in, obviously, celebrate the small wins, don't beat yourself up. But I think it's really important to kind of be level set and not to let your ego go too big or also not kind of beat yourself too much because this is a really long journey. And, you know, exactly what I just told you before, like the next six months with, you know, putting out this consumer product is going to be very painful, but also very rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I know the next few years, the building true fan, wherever it takes me is going to be very painful, but also very rewarding. So I think it's just very important to, to be patient and, and to let things come to you as well, while also pushing forward. Mm-hmm. And sort of also anticipating that the fact that there's always going to be setbacks, there's always going to be losses, um, you know, on that balance sheet, not, not just gains, but losses too happen sometimes. And, you know, uh, I, I've heard some people that, you know, lose investor commitments at the last minute. I heard people that lose one key customer that, you know, used to account for 90% of their revenue. I, you know, I heard a lot of stories about, you know, just company imploding internally for, for you know, just internal reasons. Um, and then that person was able to piece it back together and start over and now doing better than ever. Um, yep. I think that's something that not a lot of, it's never a straight line from bottom left to top right. It's sort of like, you know, a curve with a lot of setbacks and going back and, you know, it's kind of like a maze uh, where you still, you know, are looking for um, uh, for that exit or, you know, for that sort of like gate into the other room and then you're kind of yep. navigating that. It's always kind of like that. So I, I appreciate you sharing this. Um, on the personal level, and this is more of a, you know, what if question, right? But I really want to get your thoughts, your honest thoughts on this one, Swish. You know, if everything went to zero in your in your personal life, so, you know, zero, zero followers, zero sort of, um, um, you know, people knowing you, uh, you know, zero dollars or maybe some very small amount of dollars just for you to sort of, you know, uh, 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 live off of. Um, but you still knew what you know today. You still have that experience. You get to walk away with experience, but nothing, you know, no, nobody knowing you and no money to put that experience to, to work. What would be your next step? What would your next six month or two a year really look like? Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you would you would want to build everything back up, but maybe you wouldn't. So I'm just asking, like, what would that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I build it back up for sure. Um, I, you know, do the exact same thing as I did with TrueFan, right? I would find a problem that I'm really obsessed by that I know a lot about based on my experience. And I would push deeper into it by talking to people that I respect within that field, by kind of scanning the landscape and understanding where trends going towards and where trends not going towards and making sure that I'm, you know, building a business with good tailwinds. Um, and build something right off the bat, you know, like I think having an idea is great, but again, like a lot of people have really good ideas. The kind of difference between, I guess, the people that really build a great company and the people that don't are they acted on their idea in a better and quicker way. So being able to get an MVP out, get feedback and then raise money or build the product, then go and raise money or build the product, sell it and then raise money. There's just so many avenues, but the key thing that stays constant is getting to that MVP stage as quickly as possible because it just opens up a lot of places for you to be able to go past the point of getting feedback and validating your idea. You can go down a number of different avenues, but again, getting to that MVP in the quickest way possible would be the first thing that I try to do if everything went down to zero. 
I couldn't nod more furiously than I did just now when you were describing that, because that's exactly what, you know, uh, what in the ideal world a person like yourself would do. Final question. I'm going to let you go. I know you're super busy. I appreciate your time. And um, a takeaway or a parting word or like a biggest lesson that you would love to leave the community of entrepreneurs, doers, hustlers uh, that are starting a company right now. What would you tell them if you were in the room filled with founders right now? I think two things. One, I actually posted this recently on LinkedIn, but I, I do think that a lot of founders shouldn't compare their chapter one as someone else in chapter 20. I still sometimes find myself doing that when I'm on TechCrunch, for example, and I'm like, what, this company raised 20 million? How the hell? Um, and it's very easy, I think, to have feelings of jealousy, but also feelings of you know inadequacy, like thinking that you're not good enough and that like, why aren't you doing something and having that kind of imposter syndrome. So I would just block out all the noise candidly. Like I, I don't read TechCrunch anymore. I've, you know, unfollowed pages that I find give me more stress than happiness. Um, and I've really audited who I followed and what content I'm absorbing every single day. Um, and then the second big piece of advice I would say is uh, network, you know, continue to network even, even at this stage. And I love talking to people and I, I don't just talk to people that are verified on Instagram. I talk to people that come from all walks of life, right? Like just continuing to having those conversations, I think it always help because at the end of the day, I do think that especially if you're trying to build a unicorn or a billion dollar company, um, from the kind of conversations I've had with people that have built those types of companies, they very much have valued kind of their community. And they do think that it takes a village to be able to put out a unicorn, especially in Canada. So I think it's really important to make sure that wherever possible, spend time with your community, help them while also obviously continuing to learn from them and maybe even get help um, because that can always, you know, continue to help you grow not only as a person, but a, but a, but a, but a, but a business owner. We could be going on for hours, but I, I genuinely enjoy this and I, I couldn't subscribe to more to everything that you just said. Swish, thank you so much for taking time. I really, truly appreciate this. I know other people will appreciate hearing about your journey as well. Um, and uh, if there's anything that you know, myself or anybody uh, in my network can do for you, always you know, open to, uh, uh, to hearing from you on that side of things. Um, thank you so much for your time and the story that you just shared. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.